welcome to this episode of the Josias Podcast. I'm Joel, and with me as always are the diarchical duo, Elliot and Potter Edmund. Today's topic is intercalism. What is intercalism? Are there any real, live intercalists? How do you even pronounce it? Integralism? Integralism? Maybe we should just call it Gelesian diarchy, but that's so much clearer. Uh, before we get started, Potter, why don't you tell me a little bit about the music you've picked out this week? Yeah, so the music we just heard is the March of the Priests from the beginning of the second act of Mozart's The Magic Flute. Um, and we heard it in recording with Habet von Karajan from 1950. And why did you pick out uh, this in particular? It seems uh, uh, this Masonic work. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's basically the reason why I picked it out. It, <laughs> the March of the Priests is wonderfully, uh, has got this this wonderful light and, and tranquility about it. It's sort of the Enlightenment's uh, own view of Enlightenment reason as this uh, light breaking in on a dark world, triumphing over the Queen of the Night, the Catholic Church. So uh, <laughs> since we're talking about integralism today, I thought we should listen to a little bit of uh, the Magic Flute. The Magic Flute. Integralist piece. It's really uh, funny because music is the, 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 the highest point of it in a certain way is at the height of the Enlightenment. And then Mozart, maybe the greatest composer ever, in my opinion, at least, uh, writes the most enlightenment piece possible. <laughs> okay, so let's let's move on to integralism now, or integralism, <laughs> uh, depending on who one is. So it's basically got two components, right? Last yeah. week we talked about the common good, and then there's sort of the the key piece. Uh, the really distinctive piece, which is church-state relations, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So we have the, the little definition of integralism on the Josias, where we talk about how integralism rejects the separation of politics from concern with the end of human life. And that is because of what we talked about last time, namely that the end of human life is a common good. It's not a private concern. So politics is concerned with the good, the final good of man. And uh, then because in this order of this actual existing order of providence, our final good is the beatific vision, uh, then the political order needs to be subordinated to the church, which is directly concerned with that supernatural final end. And that's that's really what's distinctive about this view, because you even find pagans like Aristotle and and Plato, who have a pretty good notion of the common good, at least on the natural level. It's the uh, church-state uh, relationship, because now, at least on the classical view of or the classically Christian view, you have nature and grace all of a sudden. Uh but before we get into that more, let's talk about the name. How, how do you pronounce it? Why did we choose it? Where did it come from? Uh, Potter, maybe you could say a little bit about, I think the first time 
it was really used, uh, that we used it, although it has a history before us, was in that article where you were responding to uh, uh, that very unflappable, calm figure, John Smirak. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was looking back today at the archives of my blog, and I used it a few times before then. Oh, uh, really? Okay. But that was the first time I really expanded on it. I had used it um, in a post about uh, a former teacher of ours, Ronald MacArthur. Oh, right, uh, right. After his death, I was commemorating him, and I used the term integral in respect to him. That was um, beautiful. That was a beautiful piece. Well, he was a great man. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, Smerak, though, kind of provoked me to give an account of it. Smerak had written a piece uh, called Illiberal Catholicism. And uh, a lot of people responded to him, some people sort of claiming the name illiberal Catholic for themselves. But I didn't like that name because uh, it's... Um, liberality is, of course, a virtue, and illiberalism, the first meaning of illiberal is, of course, lacking in the virtue of liberality. So I didn't want to uh, claim that name for myself. So I chose um, <laughs> integralism then and went with it. Um, so, and I think this is right. Uh, the other thing about illiberalism is that it's kind of a negative at, at best, even if you understand, okay, we're not talking about the bad liberalism you know, liberal means something new since the 19th century. It doesn't just mean, you know, generous and open and all those good things. Uh, it's sort of a negative definition. So it doesn't really say anything about what you stand for, right? Right. Whereas integralism, uh, the name coming from integral, from uh, whole, does say something about what we stand for, namely for the integration of various um, parts of life rather than their separation. One a typical feature of liberalism, the whole liberal tradition going back to the Enlightenment, uh, is separating out different aspects of life and sort of insulating them from each other, separating church and state, separating public and private, separating uh, ethics and politics, um, separating economics and ethics and so on. Yeah, yeah. just even on an intuitive level, uh, integralism, you know, for, for a Catholic, it means your faith isn't cordoned off in parts of your life. It's it's throughout your life. Elliot, did you did you want to jump in there? Oh, yeah. I um, I was just remembering um, my my first acquaintance with the term. I remember it was in reading... Um, the, the the diary of Eve Congar from uh, the Second Vatican Council. I'm sure he, uh, the, I'm sure he loved all the there. <laughs> right, right. So this is this is what I was going to mention. I mean, in in the um, in the preface to this book, which is written by one of his Dominican confreres. Um, here, I have the book right here. Uh, the the whole preface is devoted to. Um, trashing integralism. So it's, oh, well, you know, you have to understand what the problem was uh, that that Congar was facing uh, in the 50s and 60s, and it was this this menace called integralism. And um, 
you know, in the description that this guy gives in the preface, I, I find myself agreeing with all of these things <laughs> that the integralists stood for. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm everything that, that uh, Potter says about choosing it as a name makes makes sense, and I agree with. But there's the, also the advantage that um, it, it was a term in use for this thing that we at the Josias want to support uh, or renew interest in, um, you know, it's sort of a, a term already uh, present within the Catholic action movement in the early 20th century. And um, so, you know, it's, it's there, it's kind of a natural designator for this set of ideas. Right. It was, it was, it was in the tradition, but not, uh, but there was a chance to renew it. We didn't, there weren't a lot of other people trying to claim the term, right? Uh, which was nice. Uh, although now, now maybe it's picking up traction and people are maybe not as clear about what it is. Uh, let's talk about the history of it just, just a little bit, because it's not, as you mentioned, it, it's not a new term. Uh, Potter, could you, could you walk us through the history, particularly in the 19th century and, and forward? Yeah, well, it seems like the first use of it is in Spain. There was a party in Spain in the 19th century uh, that called themselves Integral Catholics or Integralists uh, and who defended the syllabus of errors of Pius IX. Um, but the term came into wider use after the condemnation of modernism uh, by St. Pius X. Um, and then you had a lot of people, especially in France, um, calling themselves integralists, uh, namely those who are against the modernists. And they mm. said, we're integral Catholics. We, uh, we believe in the whole uh, Catholic faith uh, and don't pick and choose like the modernists do. Um, and one of the, already then, one of the main points was the question of relation of church and state, because the uh, the modernists wanted to have uh, find a way of um, affirming a, a secular or laicist state, and the integralists said, "No, that's not what we're going to do." And an important figure was uh, an Italian monsignor called Umberto Benigni, who had really good uh, relations to certain circles in France. But he worked in the Vatican, and he was employed by the Secretary of State, at that time Cardinal Mary del Val. Um, and he founded an organization called the Sodalitium Piano, uh, so the Pian Sodality, named after the reigning pontiff at the time, St. Pius X. Um, and the Sodalitium Piano um, sort of organized an anti-modernist campaign and collected information about what the modernists were doing and... Uh, relayed that information to the Secretary of State. Um, and they had an interesting program, uh, an 18-point program that's been put on the web by some uh, Italian um, state of Acantists, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they they uh, sometimes put good things on the web. And one of um, they've, the program of the Sodalizium Pianum, it's... Uh, it's very interesting, and it in many ways corresponds to what we're trying to do at the Josias. Uh, Benini writes there about uh, overcoming these separations that you have in liberalism. So uh, 
integrating church and state, but also culture and science and all these things. Right. That's interesting. So one other thing, there's, there's, I think, unfortunately, some not so great history behind the term. Uh, and there's sort of two things we can t- touch on there. One is that there's sort of uh, some people, by no means all, who used it in a vaguely nationalistic sense. Uh, and then there's sort of the Hansers von Balthasar use of the term where he sort of, uh, he ends up using it so broadly that it's most anybody he doesn't like almost. Uh, uh, Potter, would you say first about Hansers von Balthasar and then uh, we'll turn to the other part? Yeah, well, the two are connected because uh, one of the ways in which von Balthasar criticizes integralism is by linking it to the French Catholics who uh, supported the Action Française, which was Charles Maurras, uh sort of neo-pagan nationalist uh, party and newspaper in France. Um, so Balthasar, Balthasar is actually the one from whom I got the word integralism, just as Eliot first encountered it in Congar. <laughs> I first encountered it actually in a book by David Schindler, the American theologian, um, and he referred to Balthazar. So then I went back and read this. Uh, there's an essay called Integralismus that Balthazar wrote in the early 60s, right before the council, or right as the council was beginning. And he is uh, likewise critical yeah, he's extremely critical of, of integralism. And he um, he tries to portray uh, integralism as sort of the flip side of the coin to modernism. Both are bad and are sort of uh, reductionist uh, understandings of Catholicism. And only the Nouvelle Theologie and, and Balthazar and Delibati <laughs> between integralism and modernism. So. I don't know. To me, the flip side of, of modernism sounds pretty good. <laughs> uh, so the nationalistic use, that was uh, mostly in, in France, right? Yeah, the, mostly in France. And then you get uh, in Portugal as well. Um, but d- derivative from France. Uh, and it's, I'm not sure um, when Morat started to use the term and whether he took it from Catholics who are already using it uh, or how he came up with it. But uh, Morat himself was not a Catholic, but he, um, he, he was a Comtean basically, but he thought that Comte's made up religion was, wasn't going to uh, inspire anyone. And he thought that, the, the religion of France is obviously Catholicism. So if I'm going to be a French nationalist, then I, I should want to revive Catholicism, even though I don't believe in it. So, sorry for the distraction, but what was Comte's made-up religion? I don't think I've heard of this before. Yeah, so Comte, uh, Auguste Comte, he... Um, I mean, I know he was a radical positivist, um, but I didn't, I didn't know he made up a, his own faith. I, it, it's, yeah, he did. it's pretty entertaining. It was sort of in the tradition of the French Republican religion of reason. Okay, I see. He invented a new one from scratch and didn't actually take over their mm. terms and festivities and so on. That's so funny. The, I don't know very much about it. The, uh, 
the French are, are, I guess the corruption of the best is the worst, but I was reading not, not too long ago, the Sicilian Vespers by uh, Stephen Runciman, which is just this fascinating account of, of the troubles in Sicily and indeed in all of Europe in the, uh, I guess, 13th century. And at the same time, you have France, you have St. Louis, who's so great. And then you have his brother, who's just not quite as great and is trying to invade uh, Constantinople. And uh, ultimately, the Sicilian Vespers happen. And it seems to me that France has always kind of had this sort of uh, duality. You get extremely great thinkers. You get extremely Catholic. I mean, no one more Catholic. And then at the same time, you get other people who, who sort of make the faith into being about being French. So like, of course, yeah. I just need to be a Frenchman. That's how I'm a good Catholic. I just need to support, <laughs> you know, you get Cardinal uh, Richelieu, for instance. Oh, support France's interests. That's, there's no conflict here. <laughs> who, who are these great French thinkers? Elliot is skeptical. Well, you know, I, I guess I, I, France has this, this reputation. I don't, I don't remember uh, who it was who, who praised France as being you know, this faithful daughter of the church, um, probably multiple popes. But I, I think more of Spain that way over the years. Uh, you know, just... I, Arriba. I both, <laughs> yeah, it, well, I mean... Actually German. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, a pointless... Side conversation. No, no, but, no, no. It's 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 an so interesting. So, what what are the what are the Sicilian Vespers? Uh, forgive me, I I've never heard of these before. You mentioned them. Well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned them without having read about them more recently than I had. But essentially, what happened was uh, the uh, you know with with Frederick the Second and mm-hmm. uh, uh, relative of Thomas Aquinas, in fact, the Hohenstaufen uh, mm-hmm. legacy. He was so terrible. He was such a terrible ruler. Uh, uh, and he was, you know, maybe the smartest man in Europe. And uh, he had his guard was all Muslim because the popes were excommunicating him and excommunicating anyone who worked for him and, you know, trying their hardest to get him to stop his uh, his wicked ways. Uh, and they try very hard to uh, get people to come in and save them, essentially. Uh, and eventually, uh, Louis's brother does, uh, Charles, I think is his name. And to save them of, in the Holy Land. Save them in uh, Italy. In Italy. Yeah. So Frederick II mm-hmm. was Holy Roman Emperor? Or were right, he was Holy there? Roman Emperor, and then it's his okay. children, uh, uh, Manfred, I think was his, his son, and then uh, I'm forgetting his something similar for the the grandson. Uh, yeah, and he was also King of Sicily. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. His kingdom was, he sort of preferred Sicily to, to everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and spent a lot of time there. And at the time, Sicily was a very cosmopolitan place and you had a lot of trade going on there and you had a lot of uh, sort of uh, proto-enlightenment type things going on. In any event, Charles I is not 
end up being very good. And he sort of, he comes to save the Pope, but then it, it ends up being that he sort of thinks of helping the popes always in terms of helping France and helping himself. Uh, and the Sicilian Vespers is when he's planning this big invasion. And then there's a rebellion in Sicily during Vespers where a whole bunch of his uh, people get killed. And it sort of mm-hmm. ends his, uh, his uh, plans and you end up having this kingdom, the two Sicilies comes out of it. It ends up being very central uh, event, although not as well known perhaps as it should be. Huh. Yeah. And it shows that people used to go to uh, the first Vespers of Sunday. Yes. Like ordinary people because they, uh, they waited, the, the rebels waited for everyone to go to Vespers and then they uh, struck and killed all the French people and so on. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> shows you uh, what good it did the French to go to Vespers. <laughs> oh. uh, but it, it's a very interesting point in history, and it's uh, it's tied up with uh, all sorts of things that are going on at that time. But to get back to the subject at hand, mm-hmm. so this is sort of the background of the name, and then. The, uh, Potter Edmund wrote that article, and then we started writing articles on the Josias, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has those two things. We talked about the common good last time, but I thought we could briefly sort of speak about some of the more germane points for political rule, uh, particularly as it's opposed to liberalism. So, Elliot, would you say a little bit about the common good understanding of the state versus the liberal just very briefly before we move on into the sure, I, I guess stuff. Um, thinking about what we talked about last time, uh, the the best way of thinking about the liberal understanding of of the state is, I think, from a Kantian perspective. Uh, so, the state is a moderator between various individual uh, spheres of rights. So each person. Or corporation, or you know, per- person-like entity, uh, has its own sphere of dignity, uh, which is um, uh, you know apart from everyone else. Uh, it in- involves a, a high level of self-determination, um, and so on. So, um, because the dignity and rights of every person require that that person not be forced to act in a way contrary to their own ends, um, there are always going to be conflicts between various members of society. Uh, and so, you know, you have this kind of Hobbesian problem where everyone is naturally prone to be in conflict with everyone else, uh, which creates disorder and misery and, uh, among human community. So we invent the state, uh, which is a kind of uh, this monolithic force uh, that moderates between conflicting desires uh, and liberties in order to advance the greater liberty of every individual. Uh, so liberalism is, is based on this idea that uh, by restricting the freedom in small ways of all the individuals um, and supplying power to the state uh, as as this sort of um, uh, 
policemen, watchmen over, uh, over society, uh, you can guarantee the, the greater freedom of everyone. So the, the understanding of the common good there is an empty understanding of the common good. It's the common good as uh, basically uh, rescinding from any judgment about uh, what's good for the individual. Um, now, that's never actually perfectly realized, obviously. I mean, even the American founders, which were, who were, who were quite liberal uh, in, their, in their political philosophy, had a, a reasonably robust understanding of what the common good was or what the individual good of, of uh, the members of their society was. I mean, n none of them would say that uh, being a, you know, a, a penniless uh, vagabond, uh, you know, sleeping in the in the dirt, um, you know, addicted to uh, carnal pleasures would have been, you know, a, a, a dignified thing that the government should should enable um, as the end of its citizens. But um, aside from, so there are always these creeping value judgments in liberal systems. But aside from those, the principle is that you you suspend judgment. So in an integralist uh, political scheme, uh, the government does not suspend judgment about the last end of man. The government actually has views, and those views inform uh, the organization of society, policy about specific uh, um, social institutions uh, that are independent of the government. So, for instance, um, the state uh, wouldn't have control over the, over the church, but it would have an interest in supporting the ends of, of the church uh, and in um, kind of advancing its work. So uh, you have more of an idea of, uh, of, of the government as working in concert with uh, other institutions and societies within the state. Right. Um, that have their own proper spheres and ends apart from the political common good, which is primarily peace. Right. And uh, this will probably end up being a, a separate episode, but it, it seems to me that liberalism sort of works out a lot of the logic and its premises over time so that if you look back at the beginning, there's a lot of residual notion of common good just in the air. Right. So that you don't, you know, immediately have uh, the extreme separation we seem to have today. Uh, right. You know, it's it's one of these situations like with um, with secular ethics. So, you know, uh, if you look at um, bourgeois secular ethicists in Europe over the past few centuries, uh, you can see this gradual slide. So they start off having the, the morals of, uh, you know, conservative, pietist uh, Protestants. <laughs> and they just assume that conservative pietism is the fruit of pure reason, you know, pure reason, right. quote unquote. Uh, and then as, as, the, as the culture in which they're living slides away from conservative pietist Protestantism or, you know, whatever the, the sort of religious mainstream is, the ethics slides too. So you, you no longer have 
the strong, you know, Kantian strong sense of personal responsibility uh, or or um, individual spiritual life, you you end up having uh, something a little bit more watered down and more yeah. watered down until you get to uh, you know the the existentialists or um, you know late twentieth century utilitarianism which still is being driven off of echoes of Christianity, but they're so diluted. And in the same way with liberalism as the, as the culture slides. uh, So this, this implicit understanding of the common good dissolves into something that's really just uh, power politics Uh, and moderation of, of base desires by a, a mediating force. I remember, uh, being struck by this when I was reading Kant in college, that he thinks his ethics is so, you know, secure and that he's, you know, made way for faith by, by getting reason out of the way. But mm-hmm. really his ethics, a lot of it has to do with what he doesn't realize are just sort of his, his uh, prior beliefs and habits that have been inculcated him by living in a very severe Lutheran place yeah. uh and in fact his system his his philosophy by no means are any of these things necessary to them you could you can do you can go all sorts of ways that he'd be shocked at if you were and call yourself a kantian yeah yeah and in fact people do <laughs> yes <laughs> uh so one other thing i wanted to, to touch on on the common good before we moved on is uh and maybe maybe this will be something we return to. Peace can be taken in different ways. And a lot of liberals, at least in America, I'm not sure if this is as much in, in Europe, a lot of liberals sort of justify their liberalism by pointing to peace. They say, look, we're, we are gaining peace here. We are... Uh, what The government is an instrument to to peace and you can't bring your religion into the public sphere or, you know, you get to Rawls, you can't bring all sorts of things into the public sphere in his, in his final, uh, philosophy. Uh, and this is how we, this is the sacrifices we make for peace. Uh, and it, it seems to me it ultimately just means being left alone. you it, it's kind of a hollow sense of peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Potter, did you have any, what's the, what's the integralist yeah. peace? Yeah, that's right. The a real peace comes about when there's, as Augustine says, a tranquility of order, and a, a tranquility of order comes about when there is um, a common pursuit of an end, when and when each uh, part of the whole contributes to uh, pursuing that end in common. That's what what real peace is. Uh, to use your Example, Joel, from last time you talked about a, a choir. Right. You have the, the harmony of a choir, which is a kind of piece that is in the Augustinian sense. That's uh, when they're all singing um, with the end of bringing about one piece of music. Um, and that's I'll different. Sing, I'll sing my piece, you sing your piece, we'll leave each other alone. <laughs> 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 that would not be tranquility of order. That would be cacophony. If and and I think it. that's what we find. That's what that's what in fact it it ends up being. But that's a that's a good uh, segue, perhaps. 
So talking about Augustine, he's so important. He's the greatest of the church fathers, on my view at least. Uh, and uh, when you write about Gelesian diarchy, uh, which is from Pope St. Gelasius, I guess, Gelasian diarchy, I keep, keep pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you write about there being two views there, one of which is Augustinian radicalism. Could you say a little bit about that, Potter? Yeah, this was uh, from the, the piece on integralism and Gelasian diarchy that I did for the Josias. Uh, and there I called a certain um, understanding of the relation of church and state Augustinian radicalism. I think if I could go back in time, I would use a different term because it's not, I don't think it really, because uh, it's not really Augustinian. Right. <laughs> I called it Augustinian because a lot of the people who follow this view like to quote Augustine. Mm. And their view is that basically temporal power is bad. It belongs to the city of man and coercion and violence and all these things are essentially sinful. And so the Christian has to be a pacifist and an anarchist, um, be against any kind of state coercion uh, or violence, um, and basically enact the heavenly city that is to come already here in the passing world, already act according to the standards of the heavenly Jerusalem, so not use any uh, any violence or coercion of any kind, um, and just try to follow as, as literally as possible the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that's the, the, the way to go for Christians. So no participation in, um, in political life in the sense of actually uh, taking part in political decisions is justified because that would always involve a certain amount of coercion. Yeah, I, I guess it makes some, some sense why they pick up on Augustine because he's writing sort of in a, a pagan or, or perhaps just post-pagan milieu where uh, his view of the earthly city, so so what they're picking up on is Augustine's distinction between the two cities and the city of God, the city right. of man and the city of God. And his view of the city of man is rightly very dour, but also he's able to associate it, uh, in, in, at least in certain passages, very directly with, you know, wicked paganism essentially right right um so there's it, when we talk about the diarchy um there's sort of two aspects uh that are in the background two philosophical aspects one is the nature grace distinction and one is right. sort of uh how you view the common good whether you think of it in a more personalist way or whether you think of it in a more uh, transcendent way, perhaps. Uh, so bearing that in mind, what's the other, uh, the other error is the Whig Thomism. How do they read Thomas? Well, they... Um... The, the term Whig Thomism comes from uh, Lord Acton saying that St. Thomas was the first Whig. Um, and what he means by that basically is that St. Thomas was in favor of the rule of law. And to Lord Acton, the rule of law means liberalism. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you have a, a particular understanding of what 
of what uh, the function of the law means. Yeah, yeah, just to, to break in there, it's that, that's so interesting because it seems to me liberalism really sort of tends to dissolve, uh, it acts like an acid bath towards the imagination of people living in it. So uh, one of the troubles is no one can imagine a world that isn't liberal anymore. No one, huh. no one can, it, it's, you, it takes some effort for people to even conceive of it, which is why you can say things like, oh, I'm just talking about the rule of law. And really what you mean is the liberal conception of the rule of law. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So um, the idea there is the rule of law is good because it's impartial. And impartiality is there taken to mean it's neutral with respect to um, the true ends of or what people uh, choose as the ends of their life, mm-hmm. which uh, obviously is not how St. Thomas would understand the rule of law. St. Thomas a- approves of the rule of law because it's it's uh, the rule of reason. Right. Law is an enactment of reason. Um, and so rather than being ru- ruled by the passions of the moment, you want to be ruled by um, reason, right. which is embodied. And it's just because there's no respect of persons. And so right. you know, you're not... Uh, swaying the, the sort of nature of justice depending on uh, human respect for one for one person or another or your particular uh, interests in, in a given judgment. Right, right. Uh, and it ends up, I mean, for, for Thomas, there's a law is essentially, it's like extrinsic. Uh, it does extrinsically what habits do intrinsically. And of course, it would be absurd to say, oh, uh, the rule of, of, of habits and the virtuous man have no respect towards the good. They're just, you know, whatever they are. You just meet, meet a man with, with habits that he's really got strongly. That's, that would be absurd. <laughs> and yet people try to treat law as if it's uh, uh, wholly indifferent to the ends, which is not at all true. So just for a second, uh, Let's talk about where this term Gelasian diarchy comes from. It's it's Pope Saint Gelasius, right? Yes. So Pope Saint Gelasius um, is a pope who he he's the most important pope between Leo the Great and Gregory the Great. So he's after Leo the Great, but before Gregory the Great, and he um, his teaching. Uh, which is embodied especially in his letters. We have a, a number of letters from, an unusually large number of letters from him for a pope of that time. Um, and you can see in his letters a big influence of St. Augustine. He's uh, applying the, um, the general teaching of Augustine to concrete situations in his letters. And the most famous of his letters, which is uh, often called Duo Sunt, but which is more properly called Famuli Vestre Pietatis, from the very first words. Duo Sunt are the most famous words, however, in the letter. Uh, it's a letter to the, to the Byzantine or Byzantine emperor. Um, and in that letter, he explains the relation of uh, spiritual and temporal power. And the, it's often called duo sunt because the most famous line of it is there are two established by God, meaning there are two powers established by God, the sacred 
authority of pontiffs and the royal power. So that means that, in other words, there isn't, uh, it's not a theocracy. There's not one power that then delegates certain functions the way a king might delegate to a a chancellor or whatever certain uh, derivative powers, right? Yeah, that's right. That both powers are derived from God, um, um, and there's they remain distinct. Although the temporal power, because it's concerned with a less exalted end, is subordinated to the spiritual power. And there's an, another text from St. Gelasius um, called Tractate 4, uh, or On the Bond of Anathema, in which he explains it a little bit more. And there he says that the reason why um, our Lord distinguished these two powers, um, why he didn't just make the Pope ruler of the world, in other words, king as well as uh, pontiff, um, is on account of, of human pride. That is, sin has introduced a kind of uh, tension between temporal goods and spiritual goods so that it is difficult for spiritual uh, rulers to have temporal power without uh, it um, corrupting them to some degree, that is, without making them somewhat less devoted to the spiritual good. And this is the reason why they're distinguished. So it's not good to have the same person be emperor and pope. Um, so that sort of anticipated the, the uh, in a way, but I think we can, we can explore this a little more. Uh, the natural objection that comes up to my mind is if you take a sort of Aristotelian view of ends, how can there be yeah. two? Don't there need to be one? If there's two, aren't we going to end up with conflict and chaos? Ultimate ends, that is. Yeah. So, yeah, the, uh, in a sense, that's right. There is only, there can only be one final end, um, or else it would be impossible to make any decision. For a human being, to will something means um, to choose it as a means to one's final end. So it would be impossible for me to choose anything if I didn't desire my happiness, which is my final end. And it, if there were two final ends, then uh, it would be impossible to will anything because uh, there would be no principle by which you could decide whether to choose a means to final end one or final end two. So human life would be irrational. This is, this is incidentally uh, my problem with the basic good theory that the new natural lawyers like to propose where there's oh, like, yeah. I, I forget, is it seven? Is it eight? Elliot, do you know? There's a bunch of basic. I think it's eight. It, it's changed over the years. And they're um, all, they're all incommensurate, which they do. I think the main reason is to try to get away from utilitarianism. Uh, yes. But then yeah, you can't, you can't compare the value, but I mean, to be fair to the, the new natural lawyers, they're not saying that the basic goods are each the final end of man. The final end of man is, it participates in those basic goods to, to varying degrees, I think. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not a specialist in the new natural law, so it's a, it's a baroque field that I've never really gone into. All right. Keep going, Potter. Sorry for... 
No worries. That's that's a good point. So, so yeah, there can only be one final end. But um, what you see when you with uh, the doctrine of grace is that our actual final end, that is the final end that we have in the actual order of providence in which we live, is supernatural, meaning it's beyond our nature. It's not something that um, we could conceive of uh, or pursue uh, merely with our natural powers. It comes from uh, a supernatural gift uh, of grace because our final end is participation in a higher nature than our own, a living of a, of a divine life rather than a human life. It's to be adopted children of God, meaning we um, share in God's own life and God's own happiness. And that's not something that we can see through our own nature. Um, but it is something, uh, but it's not something that's unrelated to our natural end, because our natural end is also God, um, but not specified as sharing in divine life. It's just to pursue God as much as possible which naturally we can do through contemplation and through, uh, and through the virtues by which we in some way reflect God. Interesting. Yeah, I, think, Go ahead. I think the, uh, it would, it, we should spend some time um, uh, responding to these two critiques, I guess the radical Thomist view and then the Whig, or sorry, the radical Augustinian view and the Whig Thomist view. So, for instance, with the with the radical Augustinianism, uh, it seems like the objection there is that uh, is to take this sort of Protestant understanding of um, of power and uh, the the present uh, the present life, the present order of things, um, and just to assume that it's it is impossible to have uh, a regulative prudence that's informed by grace, right? So, you know, uh, the, the, the chief virtue of, of a ruler, I mean, I guess you could say the chief virtue of the ruler is justice, but also prudence uh, in, in right. determining um, the, the sort of uh, the practical order of society and, and the expediency of certain um, rules and policies uh, given the, the conditions of the time and place. Um, so, you know, if, if regnative prudence is necessarily brutal and wicked uh, and, you know, totally corrupt, uh, then, I mean, that, that, uh, that would just leak into every form of human order, period, even ecclesiastical order. You couldn't have a non-wicked ecclesiastical hierarchy uh, if, if the sort of principle of this radical Augustinian view were true in general. But since we assume that it's possible to have an imperfect but functional ecclesiastical hierarchy, which really does uh, aid in the organization of, of the church and the salvation of souls, um, it's unclear why you couldn't have a similarly sanctified um, political hierarchy uh, that also aided in you know, the, the peace of mankind, an imperfect peace, 
but are, are still a real peace and uh, again the salvation of souls right? so that would that seems like a good response to the, the radical Augustinian view yeah I think that's right um, and another another thing I think that you can see in them is that um, there's so I, I talked to we talked a moment ago about the natural end and the supernatural mm-hmm. end and saying there is only one final end uh, that we actually have, namely the supernatural end. But the there is a hierarchy of ends. That is, that end which would have been the final end had we not been elevated by grace isn't abolished by grace, but it becomes subordinate to grace. So natural the natural ends of man are subordinated to a supernatural end, but they're not destroyed by it. So um, you still uh, want to achieve those ends, but you want to achieve them in a way that disposes towards grace. Mm-hmm. And that's why you want to have a, um, a relation of the one who, the rulers who have charge of the supernatural end, namely uh, the rulers of the church, the pontiffs, um, you want them to be able to judge the temporal rulers who have care of um, natural ends that ought to be subordinated to that supernatural end. But the problem, at least with some of the thinkers whom I've called um, Augustinian radicals, is that they have a kind of monism of grace. So the only true good is the supernatural good. And there aren't really any natural goods uh, that um, you should be seeking or trying to achieve. So that uh, there isn't, for example, any natural common good of the state from which temporal authority could take its legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Temporal authority is just purely and simply violence. And it just needs to be opposed by this sort of peaceful resistance of the community right. of grace. Yeah. So there's a, it's a, it's a really, it's again, a, a basically Protestant pessimism about um, the possibility of the real sanctification of human life in the present order of things. Um, right. Whereas it, with the, the Whig Thomists, you get an opposite error um, Father John Courtney Murray, um, at least the way he's often interpreted, uh, separates the natural and the supernatural too much. So he says, you've got the natural good of the state, which is autonomous, and you know it does its own thing. And then you've got the, the church, which is um, pursuing a supernatural end. And the only duty of the state with respect to the church is to allow it to pursue its end. But there's no, um, there, there's no subordination of the good of one to the good of right. the other. Yeah, and you get all sorts of arguments that go along with that. You know, some some people will argue that if the state uh, were involved in the supernatural end, uh, the state would tend to become an idol, or would end up obstructing the actual achievement of the supernatural end by the church, things like that. And, you know, there there are definitely right. cases where that's clearly happened. I mean, there, there's a laundry list of uh, um, 
quote-unquote Catholic monarchs in Europe during the, the sort of age of Christendom uh, who obstructed the church uh, really, you know, grievously and, and a great effort. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. You often have um, in the history of Christendom rulers who try to reverse the, reverse the relation and subordinate supernatural uh, authority to their own temporal yeah. authority. So one way of so looking he, at it, one way of looking at it then is the the uh, uh, Augustinian radicals are uh, overly pessimistic, mm-hmm. uh, and they see the state as always being wicked. They see the city of man solely as the the you know uh, uh, vessels of wrath, as it were. Uh, Whereas the Whig Thomists are extremely optimistic, sort of uh, the twentieth-century optimism that that sprang up after two world wars, which has always sort of confused me. Uh, these horrible things happen, and people are like, "Things are going to be great now." It's you know <laughs> an well, odd reaction yeah. to my mind. <laughs> I uh, think I think there is a sense that uh, we've been through the worst. We survived it together. Now we know better. We're going to build a new world. You know, never again war. Right. Um, but you know, there, there's also a pessimism in the Whig Thomist view. I, I mean, it can go it can go either way uh, because they're also they're also um, subscribers to that sort of Churchillian uh, line about democracy being the worst, except for all the others. Uh, so right. it's it's a, there's a sense of compromise. Sure, it would be great for us to have an integralist uh, state in which uh, everyone was, uh, was being shepherded toward their proper spiritual end, but you can't have that because it just necessarily leads to fascist totalitarianism. So uh, don't try because you're just going to lead us down the path toward idolatry and destruction. Right. But the... Right, and then you can make the counter accusation to them that, um, in fact, you never get a really neutral right. state, and the the there's an implied uh, the, the in the so-called neutral liberal state, there's always going to be an implied highest good, and that's going to end up um, seducing people away right. from the truth. Yeah, Ellie, you've written very, extremely eloquently on this. Uh yeah, uh, I. <laughs> well, I'm speechless, Joel. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I think Potter Edmund just just said it. There's always going to be an implicit good. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I'm thinking again of of the music from the beginning. Um, so you know, it's yeah. it's funny. Uh, Mozart writes this this sort of Masonic allegory, which I love. I it's it's so great. Yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful. Is is awesome and um but it's it's funny that um the the men who preside over the kingdom of peace are priests you know um Zoroastro is is portrayed as a high priest uh not a secular philosopher um so there I don't know there's something interesting in that I'm by no means a specialist in in um you know the magic flute or its masonic symbolism but uh or or masonry generally but i think it's 
telling that these sort of uh, engineers of the the modern uh, illuminist secularism that presides in the West now um, still see themselves as as advancing a, a sacral mission of a different sort. Yeah. yeah. And to, to defend the magic flute a bit from being pure um, rationalist propaganda <laughs> or, or <laughs> illuminist propaganda, I think that Mozart is in a lot of, in, in, in many parts of the opera, he's making fun of it. I mean, I don't think Mozart really takes uh, things very seriously. And uh, he was a pre-Mason, but he also liked to poke fun at Masons and at sort of pretensions to enlightenment. So by far the, the most sympathetic character in the magic flute is Papageno, who, who uh, has you know, interest in, in all this dumb humbug about, you know, light and stuff. Yeah, he just wants a wife. He just wants a family. Papageno, that's who he's looking for. Uh, uh-huh. That's that's funny. Uh, so this uh, optimism then and pessimism it seems to me uh they they have a pessimism about substance but then they have this optimism and it's and it's an extremely enlightenment thing to do you look at you look at descartes you know trashing all these philosophers with their occult you know uh uh causes and all this stuff they're looking at and then he's like but i know how to do it i've got this formula i've got this uh sort of magic box you just wind 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 and then pop you get the answer at the end Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that Whig Thomism, they're really, they're kind of a, 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 a species of liberal, maybe not full-blown liberals, but they, they are a species of liberal, oh, as yeah, far as I can tell. Definitely. Uh, yeah. They think in politics, yeah. there's this procedure and it's, it's, it's like a wind-up box. You just, you, you put it in and if you just keep cranking the handle round and round, you'll get a great result at the end, regardless of what you're feeding in, regardless of the inputs, which yeah, is... And I, I mean, they, they have... They they have some justification for that in that uh, in a society that's coming out, you know, that's still on 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 its way down from Christendom. Right. Uh, there, that sort of proceduralist uh, mentality works. It works right. for a while because, yeah, you can you know the the this sort of basic implicit understanding of the good. Uh, it is still shared by enough people, and you you can just sort of frame things in an abstract and quote unquote neutral value neutral way uh, and they'll they'll turn out okay yeah. um, just because of basic human decency or social norms th- things residual that, Christian ethics exactly um, and to be fair, most of them will admit that the the functioning of the liberal state does depend on the virtue of the citizens, but they'll see that as the way they they'll frame that is to say um, it depends on the private on a pre political right. virtue uh-huh. of the citizen, and the best way to foster that is through religious liberty because then the churches will flourish because uh, they won't be caught up in temporal matters and then the people will be virtuous right. and then you'll. Yeah, which ties us into a different subject, which is probably a topic for for another time. But you know, there's this inherent connection between Whig Thomism and free marketism, the sort of idea that market competition 
uh, necessarily produces optimal results. And so if only we allow for religious liberty, then uh, the, the best system of belief will naturally rise to the fore. But of course, that's not true at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, th think, think about educating a child that way. Uh, you know, oh, we're going to present this child with, you know, 500 false ideas and one true one. But of course, they'll pick up on the truth of the true idea. I mean, in some cases it works, right. but it's, it's a horrible principle on which to form someone. And it comes, and, I, th I think that's such a, a good point. It, it comes, first of all, uh, living in an area that's very uh, progressive and wealthy, as I do, I hear people speaking this way about raising their children. I hear, you know, I have kids, so I, so I speak to other parents and they're, oh, I just have to let them decide their own path. I just have to let them decide for themselves. And of course, there's a sense in which that's true. You, you shouldn't, you know, say, you must be this profession, or I'm a baker, you must be a baker, or whatever it is. But there's another sense in which that's just obviously crazy. It's really, you're going to let them decide whatever they want is the, I mean, I'm looking at your kid, and they seem to have chosen junk food and TV. I mean, <laughs> is that really right. what you want? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Human human life um, is ought to be a rational life, but it begins with sensation. All our, our rational knowledge is derived from mm -hmm. sense knowledge. The, what's most known to us is sensation, and the appetites that are first known to us are sensual I remember, appetites. I remember reading the ethics. The the I remember reading game. the ethics and, and, and yeah. just feeling so sad when Aristotle is talking about the, the virtuous and the vicious man and Aristotle basically concludes, well, the, the way to become virtuous is you have to be raised well. And yeah. Yeah. when you're a kid, you have to have all these good habits. Oh no. I remember my, my first semester of college, I had a, I had a philosophy professor who announced to us that if, if we didn't already have good habits by the age of 18, it was too late for us. <laughs> I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm screwed. What, what have I done? But no, it's, this actually goes back, I think, to the, the whole ra radical Augustinian thing um, in that a, uh, a certain kind of pessimism about human nature and, and the fallenness of man uh, suggests that the coercive power of the state is necessary uh, for right. the proper order of society, even an imperfect order. You have to have that coercive power because, uh, you know, as as I'm sure Joel knows from parenting, if, if you totally abscond from the, the use of force, uh, uh, you're not going to be able to educate your kids. I mean... I, I used to be a, a classroom teacher, and if you never impose discipline, um, it, chaos reigns sooner or later. No matter how nice and reasonable you are, uh, the, the, the disorder of a few will corrupt the many. Right, which is, uh, of course, Augustine's own position. He isn't an anarchist by any means, and he sees the necessity of discipline for fallen humanity and of course he can he can uh, base that on sacred scripture uh, Romans you know the 
the ruler is the minister of God and does not hold the sword in vain. He has exercised God's vengeance. I have to admit, uh, of the two views, and maybe it's because I spent some time in one of these sort of Protestant Augustinian communities as a child, I'm much more sympathetic to the Augustinian radicalism. And one of the reasons is because they tend to build these little tiny communities where you really do see some, uh, a pursuit of the common good that's in a way very beautiful. And the problem is that it's not a perfect society. It's a, it's an incomplete society. Uh, but one of the funny things to me is that if they don't have some coercive power, at least in their own internal communities, and often they have a great deal of coercive uh, power, the thing uh, will last, you know, but a moment. It'll yeah. it'll fall apart almost instantly. Uh, there's that funny story that that you wrote about Potter Edmund with Dorothy Day. I yeah. always want to say Doris Day, but that's a different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Dorothy Day. I mean, she's she's really the one of the the heroes of Augustinian radicalism, and she was herself extremely radical in her attempt uh, at um, living by her principles. She really tried to live a life entirely without any coercion uh, or exercise of um, coercive power. And um, I mean, I love Dorothy Day. She's in many ways an amazing, wonderful and admirable woman. But um, on this point, I think she uh, she was just wrong, and it's it it's shown in the way that uh, I mean she describes in the Long Loneliness, her autobiography, how one of these Catholic worker communities that she founded was torn apart because some of the members uh, just decided to take the common belongings <laughs> and appropriate mm-hmm. them to themselves, uh, and they had no mechanism for for disciplining them, and they just said, okay, we'll just you know if someone takes your coat give him your tunic as well so they ended up giving everything to these people and and then they abandoned that house and went and started another house leaving that house with the uh the people who stole it uh whereas if you look at at the great monastic founders uh saint benedict being one whose rule i know the best since i uh have taken a vow to live by it um you have a very clear structure of authority and you have sanctions for people who don't break the rules. In other words, in other words, there's mm-hmm. coercion. It's an attempt to rule, to live by the gospel, but um, there's a place in that attempt for, for temporal And, and in fact, uh, it seems to me not being a monk and not, not knowing the rule of St. Benedict the way you do, but one of the vows that religious community takes is obedience and in this way, you combine right. the radical message that is there in Christ. If you know, if if a man asks you to carry his uh, satchel or whatever it is for a mile, carry it for two. Uh, if a man asks for your cloak, give him your uh, tunic as well, or whatever it is. Uh, it seems to me, at least, that by having obedience be one of the vows, then the monks are able to say, "I'm going to do whatever." I'm asked by my superiors and I'm going to fulfill those, those commandments or those, those exhortations of Christ. 
but at the same time, you're able to have some sort of rule and order, and you're not going to have the guys coming in and just appropriating all your stuff. Yeah, I think that the absence of that is one of the the most visible corrupting uh, influences in at least in American society today. I mean, you, you see it all over the place. The on both sides, there's this sense, there's almost a longing on the part of the people who ought to be subjects to be subjected to something, but then there's this t- tremendous fear on the part of people in authority to do things that would involve disciplining their subjects. You know, you can see this in schools. Um, it's it's just across the board in the, in the legal system. You know, we don't like the idea of punishing people. Um, so this is a perfect yeah. lead-in since we've we've uh, uh, gone on for quite some time. But there's two things I want to talk about before we end that we kind of have to talk about. Number okay. one is Vatican II, and that ties right into what uh, Elliot was saying about yeah. the fear of discipline uh, right. on the part of the authority. And number two is. So uh, given that we have this highly practical uh, political theory and, and uh, uh, that's highly impractical today, what are you supposed to do? Uh, and that sort of ties into my mind. The, one of the reasons I'm attracted to the Augustinian radicalists is that you see communities like, say, the, the Bruderhof or whatever, that in a certain way, it's a good way for living today, right? It's in a certain way it, it does, uh, you know, in a certain way that may be the most we can do at this moment. Uh, let's start with Vatican II, though. Potter, doesn't Vatican II, I mean, here's the argument. Doesn't Vatican II change everything? We're, you're quoting these old dusty popes. <laughs> but, but Pope Pius X is dead. Pope Pius V is dead. All these popes are dead, as some the, eminent theologian said on Twitter recently. Uh Vatican II, uh, doesn't it propose a new way? Doesn't it endorse the liberal order? So um, the the big uh, document of Vatican II that people take as ending uh, official support for integralism in the Catholic Church is obviously Dignitatis Humanae. The Declaration on Religious Liberty, um, which gives a very emphatic uh, teaching on the uh, duty of the state to grant religious liberty to all citizens or subjects of the state. Uh, And this is grounded in the nature of faith, which has to be accepted freely uh, and not through coercion. Um, so this is, this is taken as meaning it's, impo- it's impossible for you to have an integralist order because that would mean violating religious liberty. And basically, uh, I think that that reading is wrong uh, for two reasons. The first reason is the one given by Thomas Pink in his um, extremely brilliant interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae, where he shows that um, in the long process of drafting the document, the eventual, eventual solution that they came to in order to avoid 
contradicting previous magisterial teachings was to bracket the role of the state as the secular arm of the church. That is to bracket the whole question of what the state is allowed to do uh, insofar as the church calls the state in to uh, assist her in disciplining her own subjects, her own members. Um, and he, he showed, uh, Pink has showed how um, the traditional teaching has always been that coercion in matters that relate immediately to the supernatural end, that is, for example, the punishment of heretics, um, does not take place on the authority of the temporal ruler, but it takes place on the authority of the spiritual ruler. And the temporal ruler is merely acting as an agent of the spiritual power. Uh, when So heretics would be tried in an ecclesiastical court, and then they would be handed over to the, to the secular arm for punishment. But the secular arm wouldn't be punishing them on its own authority, but on the authority of the church. And what Dignitatis Humana does very cleverly, but a little bit disingenuously, uh, and it does this right in the first, uh, right in the, the preamble of the document, is it brackets the, that whole question. And it says, we're, we're just going to look at the, the native authority of, this, of civil society. That is the authority that civil society has just on account of its own nature. And therefore we leave untouched traditional teaching on the duties of societies to uh, the true religion. So then everything it says uh, about how the state can't compel anyone and so on uh, is to be taken just about the state insofar as it uh, has authority from the natural law uh, as it's in charge of the yeah, temple. There's something good. confusing. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There's something confusing in the document. Um, in that, just, just uh, something? Well, <laughs> okay, there are a few confusing. The, the, the thing that I'm thinking of here that's confusing in the document is that on one hand, it talks about the this uh, religious liberty uh, as being revealed uh, in the gospel. Basically, it's it's a revealed truth of the faith that uh, man cannot be coerced to believe. Which is, is true. I mean, right. it's absolutely correct. Yeah. But then, so it sounds, that language sounds like the language of some sort of dogmatic definition. Uh, because that's, that's sort of how you go about doing those things. You say, oh, well, this, this is a revealed truth of the faith. Therefore, it's binding on all the faithful to accept that, uh, so on and so forth. But then on the other hand, we have this line, which uh, Potter just pointed out, uh, Furthermore, in treating of this religious freedom, uh, the Synod intends to develop the teaching of more recent popes on the inviolable rights of the human person on the, and on the regulating of society by law. And it's doing this with respect to um, the natural law. It's basically, the, the, the document is, um, it's not, uh, how do I put this? It's not an, a, a, a sort of, rejection of the previous uh, integralism of 
um, you know, a dozen or more popes who uh, reigned from the French Revolution to Vatican II, um, all of whom were emphatically uh, integralist in the sense that we've discussed here. Um, it's doing something else. And so the other confusing thing about the document is that the rhetoric that it uses, and this is true for a few of the, the major documents of Vatican II, it's borrowed from the opponents of the church. And so there's this I ideal of appropriating the language of uh, the age of the modern world, which I think they take to be uh, secular liberalism, and turning it toward the ends of the church. But this is very, um, at least potentially misleading, and we can see historically that it's been more than potentially misleading, <laughs> because uh, the world reads this document, sees its own language, its own aspirations expressed in it, and thinks, ah, the church has given way to our way of thinking. And all of that old, uh, you know, all the old protestations against the modern liberal order and the revolutions and all of that have, have gone away. They finally turned the page. <clears throat> and so then, then the third thing that's confusing is, is I think what Joel used or was intending to use as a sort of segue between our last subject and this one, which is the lack of um, disciplinary clarification uh, on the part of uh, the ecclesiastical authority since the Second Vatican Council to stand behind what was really meant. And so you have all of these, you know, even, even by a liberal reading of the council, flagrantly uh, false interpretations of the council documents uh, being allowed to flourish, be taught in seminaries and Catholic universities, and claimed by Catholic politicians, and so on, and the and the church stands silently, or you know it'll it'll the authorities will produce a long-winded document that that softly corrects them, but everyone ignores those things because uh, what forces the unruly child to pay attention isn't a one hundred page treatise on the topic, but uh, you know an actual use of of coercive disciplinary power which the, the, the right. authorities, I mean, even in the most extreme cases, you know, you think of Hans Kung, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who is still, as, as far as I'm aware, a, a priest in good standing. Um, <laughs> yeah, he lost, he lost his, uh, his permission to teach right. Catholic theology, but he's still, he's still allowed to preach it's, from the pulpits. In fact, I've heard him preach, uh, I was, he, he preached in... I lived in Tübingen as a child for a year, and he preached in my parish. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So there we are. I have That's a different. I have a different, and maybe this is something Potter was going to get to. I have a different objection, sort of to the to the pink, and maybe this ties in a bit to what Elliot was saying. This document is is so confusing and it kind of maybe it doesn't actually contradict itself maybe pink is right 
but you know, it starts out famously talking about how it, it leaves untouched the traditional teaching. And then certainly the way it's commonly been read, certainly the way it sounds, it seems to proceed to uh, uh, change in all sorts of ways the traditional teaching. But if we're talking about a uh, the magisterium, you have to judge any particular document in the context of the whole. And you have to also judge it by its own notes of authority. If the Pope is, uh, you know, speaking off the cuff, that's obviously not as weighty as if he's issuing a bull in which he solemnly defines something. So if you have a pastoral, uh, a decidedly pastoral uh, council at which the Pope at the beginning and the Pope at the end say, uh, this is not a doctrinal council. And then you have a document that's talking about how to, uh, you know, sort of policy almost that says at the beginning, we leave untouched traditional doctrine. Even if it's seemingly, even if it's ambiguous as to whether it really does leave untouched traditional doctrine, why isn't the answer, let's just ignore Vatican II and move on with our lives. <laughs> Father, did you... <laughs> Not to put you well, on the spot. <laughs> uh, I don't think. It... <laughs> yeah, I think it's true that you have to attend to the level of authority of different documents and and read the ones that have a lesser note of authority in the light of the ones that have more authority. And you have very authoritative statements on um, what we've been called. What we've been and calling integralism consistently. Uh, yeah, for a long time, yeah. I mean, you have Julius the first's letter, which the authority of which is sort of confirmed by the fact that it's gotten quoted by so many subsequent popes and so many different documents. And then you have an ex cathedra uh, definition from uh, Boniface the Eighth, Unam Sanctum, which uh, defines the subordination of. Uh, the temporal sword to the spiritual sword. Nevertheless, I think it's uh, true that Dignitatis Humana does claim to be um, interpreting divine revelation in an, in an authoritative way yeah. at certain points. Um, especially when it's saying that uh, no one can be f forced to accept the faith. Uh, that's Something that is right. uh, that has always been taught. You can't force them to be baptized. So the coercion that the church can use the secular arm to uh, enact is going to be over her own members, people who are already um, baptized. Um, and I think it is important to not to say, all right, let's just forget Vatican II. It's about as important as you know the Second Council of uh, Orange or whatever. Um, <laughs> don't need to worry worry about it because it is the most recent ecumenical council and its purpose was in a way to set the pastoral strategy for uh, our own time. So I think it is something that we have to read and think right. about if, and take seriously. Right, if for no other reason that, that uh, a lot of people who are, who are, as Elliot pointed out, just coming up with wild theories that can't even be supported by any fair reading of the text and are claiming that this is what Vatican II was really all about. Uh, you know, if you, if you leave the floor to them, then, you know, they, they'll be the ones who get to decide what Vatican II should mean. Uh, 
So there's so many things that we didn't talk about. There's so many things I was hoping we would talk about. For instance, the uh, the magisterial Calvinists or Protestants or whatever, and uh, things of that nature. But I think we should focus on one last topic, which is what do we do? Uh, this theory, obviously, not even in the church, is it very popular right now? Obviously, liberalism <laughs> is uh, somewhat like modernism. It, it it it's so flexible. It's hard to kill it because it loves to say, oh, yes, come right in. You can be a it brands things in a way, you know, oh, your thing is uh, 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 beautiful liturgy here. You can you can go. We'll 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 sell you some beautiful liturgy. Come come buy it. Uh, What do you do living in at this moment in history when let's be honest, there's not there's not going to be a St. Louis anytime soon, as far as human prudence can see. Well, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's really <laughs> as my Latin teacher used to say, whenever we asked him a question, <laughs> you tell me. Oh, um, it seems to me there's a couple of things you can do. Number one, you can do sort of theoretical work hopefully that's aimed at, at, at ordinary people uh, so that you can explain what the teaching and tradition of the church has been. And the other thing you can do is uh, uh, sort of similar to what the radical Augustinians tend to do, which is try to make spaces in which families can live and this is this is true, I think, particularly because of the nature of the modern uh, uh, capitalism and finance system. Uh, it's hard just materially to live a sort of common life these days. It's very isolating, at least in America. Uh, you go out to the suburbs and, you know, you don't know your neighbors and you don't live close to family and stuff like that. So the other thing you can do is try to build small bonds locally or or online i suppose uh but these are these are both as far as i can tell very long strategies they're not anything that's going to happen immediately yeah well, i think that's right um i think uh, one uh, there's a there's a great uh, kierkegaard essay um called uh what is it the present age i think uh, where he talks about the present age as, as the age in which everyone is always starting a, rev- a revolution. You know, great things are always about to happen, but nothing ever does. Right. And uh, right. this is one of the, the big temptations of modern life, is to, to initiate great causes, uh, which never amount to anything, because there's no, virtu- there's, there's no real uh, virtue behind them. Uh, there, there isn't the, the fortitude necessary to sustain, and there's not the prudence necessary to plan uh, what's being imagined. Um, and so, you know, what Saint Catherine, Saint Catherine says that uh, you should start with the the, the ordinary virtues, um, and uh, so really, I think practically that the number one thing that that people should do. In terms of political organization, is to catechize themselves and uh, and understand 
uh, the church's teaching in a in a robust and deep way, and not not in a sort of shallow. Um, uh, how do I express this? A shallow way informed by, uh, you know, most the most recent statement on X, Y, and Z. You know, there's a way of reading the church's doctrine like one would read the news, right? Uh, which uh, is fine as it as far as it goes, but in terms of really teaching people what what Christianity is, um, can be misleading. Um, so yeah, building community, catechizing. I mean, uh, this is the sort of stuff. Um, Jean Jean Ousset, who is uh, I think a late member of the Action Francaise, um, wrote this book uh, during the, the or right after the Second Vatican Council called Action, in which he outlines a practical uh, set of principles for organizing Catholic political uh, integralist movement. And uh, what he starts with is saying that you need to be a, a good Catholic first. Um, you need to understand the faith and never stop studying it. Uh, and that after that, the main thing is to build up associations with other Catholics. Um, so they don't need to be uh, intentional communities of, you know, of a sort of uh, you know, gated community you're living with with other Catholics or, or anything like that. I mean, that's that's good, obviously, in its own way. But uh, forming forming social bonds, professional bonds, uh, based on uh, the faith, and then using those associations to uh, form and be formed by others uh, in the truth and work in, in a small way toward the transformation of whatever you're doing, whatever secular purpose uh, you're at, uh, into something that's, that's more deeply Christian. Um, so, you know, I, I think in certain ways, Opus Dei is a great uh, representation of, of what should be done. Yes. Um, and it, it's unfortunate that uh, the... The, the sort of organization of Opus Dei is committed to a kind of uh, invisibility um, and transparency within the secular world. It's also unfortunate because, because in a practical level, they really do seem to be doing a lot of, you know, at, at very high levels, practically speaking, yeah. they're building communities, they're catechizing themselves. And then yes. you look at certain economic or political matters and they're just like, we're going to be as cookie cutter uh, and as up to date as possible. And it's like, oh, come on. Well, and a lot of their, their institutes are um, avowedly secular. I mean, even though anyone who has any connection to them knows that they're Catholic, they will claim to the public as, you know, as earnestly as possible that they're really just a secular institute. Um, so I mean, there's there's something unfortunate about that, yeah. but another uh, another good example um, would be some of the what are called the movements, mm -hmm. the movimenti in Italian, um, which I think is one of the really good things that came out right. of Vatican II. They have certain excesses and certain misunderstandings of the tradition that um, hopefully will be corrected in time. 
I think they do a lot of a lot of really good work along the same lines, and sometimes without those specific weaknesses Who, that Open right. Day has. So, for example, uh, oh, okay. communion okay. and liberation. Yeah, communion and liberation is one of the movimenti. Uh, I know it quite well because a lot of my relatives are in it. My parents are in it. Several of my brothers and sisters are in it, and they do a lot of. So it's a lay movement. Uh, well, it's an ecclesial movement, and it includes lay people, consecrated people, and priests. Um, the the largest number of the people in it, of course, though, are lay. And it's really about uh, starting from the foundations, really uh, trying to be converted to Christ oneself, to really um, be converted by the gospel. And then to share that with one another, to experience the communion and the liberation that mm-hmm. comes from Christ, hence the name. Uh, and they do a lot of practical stuff too. So they have uh, a lot of involvement in education, in um, charity work in the third world, medicine, and so on. Uh, and in Italy, they have a, a lot of um, political uh influence as well. There are a number of CL politicians in Italy, in the, uh, the, the, the Christian Democratic Party in Italy, um, which comes out of the tradition of um, Alcide di Gasperi and these people. Um, so there I think you have something really, really good, the right way to go about something, but uh, all of these movements uh, have their blind spots with regard to the reading of the tradition. And obviously none of them would share our reading of <laughs> right. Dini yeah. which I think is something. Well, guys, this has been uh, so much fun for me once again. And uh, I think we, we had a very, at least for me, fruitful discussion. Although once again, and maybe this is good, future episodes, we, we left so many things unexplored that I was kind of hoping we would get to. The topic is just, I mean, integralism. It, that's everything that we do, more or less. So <laughs> yeah. it's kind of inevitable. Uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Elliot.